Welcome to the Live Pono Love Pono podcast. We are a podcast that focuses on creating and building healthy relationships. Love Pono's mission is to provide a safe environment to help the community build and maintain healthy relationships through education, intervention, campus and community resources, and counseling. We educate our community through events, social media campaigns, and workshops to cultivate a campus culture of responsibility and respect, ultimately preventing interpersonal violence. We're excited to have you here today for today's podcast. Well, aloha, everyone. Welcome to the Live Pono, Love Pono podcast. Um, I am Kalehu Kamakani, or people just call me Kale uh, Ruiz. Um, and I'm joining Kayan today so that we can talk about shame as it relates to how we talk about sex, our body, and, and relationships uh, in life. And what we're going to dive into is comparing how Hawaiians saw sexuality and compare that to how we see it now. And it'll be interesting to look in that contrast. And, and mind you, even if you're not Hawaiian, just looking at the comparison can teach us a lot, I think. Um, but we wanted to start with a quick activity here. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say two words and Kyan for you to just, when I say the words, I want you to just think about a couple of things um, for the listeners. When I say these two words, what's your immediate reaction in your mind and in your body? Like, how do you feel when you hear these words? How do you react? Is it, is it a strong reaction? Is it, it is, did you, did you have no reaction? Is it a negative or a positive reaction? What are you thinking when you hear these words? Okay. So I'm going to hear, here's the first word is penis. And the second word is vagina. Now, when don't, don't need to share yet, Kayan. We'll, we're going to come back to it. But I want you to just, again, think about what was your immediate reaction, not what you thought after the fact, but immediate reaction. And for listeners, we're going to come back to this and uh, kind of deconstruct how maybe any feelings that you had hearing those words, okay? Because for many people, these words can often elicit a strong response based on shame that a lot of us have been taught, especially in um, Western Christian influence culture. Okay, so today when I'm speaking to you folks, I'm speaking to you as um, a queer Native Hawaiian person, but also as someone who was raised very strong Catholic and Christian. So that's also why I've started to look at this juxtaposition, this comparison of the two, because I started to notice really big differences. And I'm hoping pointing out those differences will be interesting for um, folks to kind of think about how we think about sh uh, shame in regards to sexuality and, and our bodies and genitalia. Um, we see it in media, politics, in cinema, in pop culture, in, in our interactions, right? We, we have strong reactions to anything related to our bodies or the act of sex, you know, like we call genitalia private parts, right? Just even saying private parts is even like there's, a, there's something that needs to be concealed. So I wonder how many of us have actually taken a look and thought about um, where does that come from? You know, it's so automatic for us to think that way. Where does that come from? Um, so let's take a look at how Native Hawaiians saw sex and genitalia. Now, with Native Hawaiian culture, sex was seen as something, um, as Mary Kavena Pukui put it, of supreme pleasure. Um, it was something that was seen as very good and very beautiful in Hawaiian culture. And it was connected to two ideas um, that I wanted to cover. One is le'a or le'a le'a, 
and the other is creation. So le'a or le'a le'a can translate to, many Hawaiian words can translate to many different English meanings, but le'a can translate to euphoria um, or uh, just bring the idea of bringing joy and fulfillment. It was, a, it was a marker of fulfillment in your life when you had a lot of le'a in your life. This hooked into the idea of creation. Now with creation, um, in life, Hawaiians wanted to create new things. It was about trying new things and creating um, to bring le'a for oneself in the creative process, and then also to bring le'a for those around us. Um, so as an example, let's say you are a musician and you're composing a song. Um, and in putting together the melody and the lyrics, you, you find a lot of le'a, you find a lot of euphoria and enjoyment in that. And then when you share that song, you bring a lot of enjoyment to the people around you who hear it uh, and who maybe want to sing along with it or also learn to play and sing it. Um, right there is creation and le'a tied together. Now, le'a can also translate to orgasm. And that is because with Native Hawaiian culture, sex was seen as indispensable to happiness. It was part of this idea of le'a. Um, so in terms of sex, when, they, when Hawaiians thought about it, um, sex was, again, an act that brought le'a, it, it can be, right, a, a pleasurable physical, physical experience. But also when you um, engage, creation happens. And when we say creation, yes, that refer, can refer to procreation, you know, creating uh, descendants or taking. But it also refers to when you engage in that act, it can influence emotion. You can start to develop a stronger bond with that person because it is an intense, pleasurable experience. So you're actually creating, maybe even trust within a relationship when it's a when it's a healthy interaction. Um, and but by, by the way, I forgot to mention for folks who haven't heard the previous podcast, we did cover le'a in a more general sense um, with one of our previous podcasts. But this is kind of bringing it into the arena of sexuality now. Um, now, again, because sex was seen as something that was good in life, it, it should be pursued. There should be a lot of it, right? Because it's a good thing. And because of that, there was no shame in sex or genitalia and talking about it. It was very openly talked about. It was not uncommon for, even for grandparents to talk to Keiki about it. You know, in, in our culture now, it's very common to see the, the trope on TV where a grandparent or a parent starts talking about sex and the kids are like, stop. I don't want to stop. I don't want to go there. It was different in Hawaiian culture because it wasn't something to be ashamed of. There was Lilikala um, Kameelehiva, one of our um, prominent uh, Hawaiian historians, uh, talked about a concept called moyaku moimai, which translates to sleeping here, sleeping there. And again, it was okay to have sex with multiple partners. Um, and you can also see the, the, that there isn't shame behind it when you look at our creative expressions like hula and mele, uh, there are a lot, there's a lot of eroticism in the way the land is described. Uh, and in um, vice versa, when we describe sex acts, we liken them to aspects of nature. Um, one of my favorite examples to bring up is, because um, a lot of people uh, recognize it if they grew up in Hawaii, is uh, a song by Kelly Iraishel, who is a Hawaiian composer. Um, and the song is called Ipole Momi. A lot of people, when I say the title, don't immediately recognize it, but the tune goes, And then people usually recognize it when they hear that melody. But in that song, 
notice the tune is very jovial. It's very letter, very happy and, um, and almost and playful. When you look at the translation of that song and you look at the lyrics, he is actually singing about the act of sex and also of genitalia. But notice it's not in a, in a, in a dark or private way. It's in a very jovial way. And that kind of captures how Hawaiian saw sexuality. Now, with all of that being said, I did want to bring in a concept that a Western sexologist, uh, Dr. Loretta Haroyan, had actually coined called a sexually supportive culture. Um, so an, another uh, researcher, Amy Marsh, applied this to Hawaiians. And in sexually supportive cultures, the quote was, believe it, uh, sexually supportive cultures believe that sex is indispensable to human happiness and encourage early sexual expression as a means of developing adult sexual competency and positive sexual attitudes. So basically, establishing a healthy relationship between us and our bodies and the act of sex. Um, and it also added that it was about building capac uh, capacities for intimacy and pleasure with its citizens so that we knew how to form these bonds in a healthy way. Um, <clears throat> with that being said, for Hawaiians, sex was also connected to kuleana. And this extended to many things, but one was communal parenting. So if you had multiple relationships with um, you know, different people and had children from that, everyone who was involved was responsible for those keiki. They took responsibility to parent those keiki and raise them. And, you know, it's hard enough managing relationships with one other person. So when you have multiple relationships, more respect, transparency, and connection is needed to maintain that. So there's a lot of responsibility involved. So it's, um, sex came with responsibility, basically. In line with that, there were two sort of taboos with Hawaiian sexuality. And one was the idea of people who had emotionally stingy relationships. So those would be the ones who, um, they had a lot of sexual relationships, but not a lot of kuleana came out of those. You know, they didn't form bonds with people or, or take that responsibility that was expected. And there were all kinds of words, uh, pre-Christian now, that described maybe what we would call promiscuity, but the words did not have to do with the act of sex the way some of our words do now, where it's shame about sex. The words were more uh, relating to kind of being childlike and immature, not taking your kuleana on. So as an example, one was, um, let's see, uh, pipine and pipine. So pipine means to move from here to there quickly. Pipine me translates roughly to emotionally stingy, not really getting involved. Um, one of my, uh, one of the ones that really stood out to me was uh, hakakawaka manu. So manu is bird and hakakawaka manu means a bird that goes from roost to roost or a roost that allows many birds to hop on and off. So see, there's kind of a, it more describes a flightiness. It's not about the act of sex. It's just that, oh, these, they, they just move on. Um, and then the other, this was actually the main taboo though. And that had to do with pregnancy across class lines. Um, mo'i or mo'ivahine, the, the chiefs and chiefesses, they had a kuleana to maintain the uh, purity of the bloodline, the mana, the power of it. So they would achieve this through what we call ni'au pi'o matings, which was between brothers and sisters or cousins, um, which is something that's common, right, through a lot of cultures across the globe. But they had that kuleana soul. 
pregnancy across class lines was seen as a very bad thing. So if you were a higher ranking bahine or woman and you became pregnant by someone of lower status, there were actually quite a bit of consequences that came with that. Um, but that was really the main taboo. It wasn't about sex itself, notice. It was all about kuleana and responsibility. Now, let's now flip the script here and let's take a look at how Western Christian values, American Christian values have taught us. And now, just like with, even if you're not Hawaiian, it's still interesting to see the Hawaiian perspective with Western Christian perspectives, even if you were not raised Christian or Catholic, you've seen or been influenced in some way by these values because they're part of American culture in a very big way. So we've been exposed to it in some way or another. Um, but with Western Christian views of sexuality, it's suppression of pleasure that brings you close to God, that makes you moral, opposite of Hawaiian culture, right? Where it was about pursuing pleasure. Uh, now in Western Christian culture, sex is seen as a sin in and of itself because it's so pleasurable. Um, as an example, there's that trope of the seven deadly sins and one of them is lust, which has to do with sexual desire. Um, as an example of how suppression of pleasure was so important, is so important in Christian culture is me being raised Catholic, I immediately think of priests and nuns. Um, with priests and nuns, they do not engage in romantic or sexual relationships and everything down to their food, down to their garb, what they wear, where they live, their living quarters, everything is as bland and not pleasurable as possible because that is what made them um, holy, what brought them closer to God. This is where the stigmatized use of the word hedonism comes from. So some of you listeners might have heard this, the term hedonistic or hedonism before. What that word actually was, was the study of pleasure in psychology. But when it came to these views, it was spun as people who pursue pleasure without any regard for consequences. Okay, And interestingly, when... Hawaii was being colonized, a lot of the missionaries described Hawaiians as hedonistic because of their practices of pursuing pleasure. But we know that that definition of hedonism doesn't apply, right? Because Hawaiians didn't pursue pleasure without regard for consequences. In matter, as a matter of fact, all of their pursuit of pleasure tied directly to kuleana. It was very important for them to have responsibility as they were going about pursuing pleasure. So that's an, another interesting area where the two culture, cultural mindsets don't really click. Um, <clears throat> now, this idea of hedonism shows itself in the words we use in English uh, in our culture. Like, you know, when you tell a sex joke, it's a dirty joke. When, you, when someone makes a, a reference and you interpret it as sexual, your mind is in the gutter. Uh, or perverted, and if you know you're talking about sex openly, you're seen as shameless in a bad way. And a lot of this is reinforced by a lot of our cultural practices. One that I recall, and I don't know how widespread these are today, but when I was in high school, we had abstinence programs. And abstinence was a big thing at the time, and it was about you know don't have sex till marriage, and we even had to sign physical contracts that we asserted we would not have sex till marriage. Um, if you really think about it, that's a, that's a little, um, that can be traumatizing for a kid, for a teenager, where you're basically telling them to be afraid of the act of sex, afraid of their bodies, and now they have to avoid every desire they have. That's, 
an interest an interesting place that we put people into at that time. Um, now, because genitalia are used in sex, those things become shamed along with the act. And when you have shame around something, you create fear. And when you have fear around something, that creates control, control people. Um, our cultural framework around sex kind of exists to control when and how we express our desire, okay? So this ex uh, extends to so many things because with Christian sexuality, right? It's based largely on the gender binary. Number one, you can only be a man or a woman and also on heterosexuality or what we call heteronormativity where heterosexual is the only normal way. So you, you have to identify as a man or a woman and whoever you're attracted to has to be the opposite. That is the only acceptable way to express your desire. That's a, and that's a very small um, box to put it in um, when you look at how sexuality is across cultures. But anyways, that touches on a lot of things, right? Because it controls who we love, okay? So queer people or people who are in polyamorous relationships, not acceptable because you're supposed to be just with one person. Um, what we wear, you have to wear gender appropriate clothes. You know, if you are a woman, you have to wear clothes for a woman. If you are a man, you have to wear clothes for a man. And if you are a woman, if you reveal anything that shows too much skin, you're automatically labeled a certain way. All of that ties back to this shame. All of it comes back to that. Um, and um, of course, um, with genitalia coming in, because when we talk about sex, right? Genitalia is used in sex. So now, not only are we ashamed to talk about the act, but now we're ashamed to talk about our body itself because it's such an integral part of that expression of desire. So that creates a lot of struggle right, in how our, in our relationship to our bodies and to sex. So just as to kind of a, a tie-up comparison here, Hawaiian views were more about freedom to express this desire, to act on it, but there was still kuleana involved. But the good thing is there wasn't shame around sex or genitalia. Now, with Christian views, there was quite a bit of shame. There is still quite a bit of shame around the act of sex and genitalia. And that, again, takes away our autonomy over our bodies. Um, it kind of controls how we feel we can experience and express our desire and experience our bodies. Um, and in some talks, I have even gone even further to talk about that was kind of the goal of colonization when they colonized indigenous peoples. When it comes to colonization, regardless of what group we're talking about, Hawaiians, Native Americans, who, um, the aboriginals in Australia, wherever, the goal was always to sever the roots. So a lot of indigenous cultures had more fluid ideas of gender and sexuality. And in order to colonize, to control, they had to put them into this box of sexuality to say that this is the only thing that is acceptable, okay? So with that shame that came from these dynamics that are, are centuries before us, but they still affect us today, you can see a lot of contemporary examples of this shame coming out. Um, and I'm just going to throw out a few pop culture references. Uh, one that recently is coming up again is the Janet Jackson Super Bowl controversy. Okay. Now, um, this happened in 2004, but it came up again this past year because Janet Jackson released her documentary where they talked about it. And it's very interesting to just watch and review how strong the reaction was um, to 
her breasts being exposed on, on television in public. Um, <clears throat> and, and mind you, I'm not saying one way or another that it was wrong for people to say or what. I'm just saying it's interesting that a breast is something that all of us probably will and have seen at some point in our life. It's not something that's threatening. It's not something that's aggressive or scary. But it's interesting when you look at people's reactions, you would think something really, really terrible. She did something really, really terrible. Um, and an, a, another thing that is bringing outrage now is uh, if you folks have seen the movie Turning Red, um, you may have heard that there is a metaphor um, and actually direct mention of um, puberty for women, menstruation or, or periods, uh, even pads are directly brought up. Like they have a shot where they show the mother holding pads and talking to her daughter about it. Um, there was a strong reaction again from people, uh, from parents especially, um, who someone even said the movie was trash because it was talking about menstruation. And even for me, not being um, a woman, I, I, for me, I was like, this is actually great because we're talking about a bodily function and body parts in a way that is normal. And guess what? It is normal. Many women go through this, this experience. So it was, I thought it was really cool to see it normalized, but I can understand where the reaction is coming from, right? Because we know where that comes from now that we've kind of talked about it. Their shame has been instilled for decades or even centuries in terms of how we think about sex. Um, <clears throat> another example is the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Uh, in Florida, which is colloquially called the Don't Say Gay Bill. Now, this one relates to it because gender and sexuality in, in our framework tends to get conflated. They're seen as the same thing. And <clears throat> so if you are transgender, automatically people start thinking about how you have sex, which is, which is interesting, right? Because they, they automatically connect that to the idea of sex and it being something shameful and to be hidden. And same way with sexual orientation, is that, well, we can't talk about people being gay because children shouldn't learn about sex, but we show a lot of examples to very young children about heterosexuality. That is also sexual orientation. It's not the sex act, but because there's so much shame in the sex act, it gets lumped into all of these things, right? And once again, this is all tying into that idea of shame. So what does this do when we have all this shame well, you have those reactions that we just talked about, and we learn to be ashamed about sex. We learn to be afraid of our bodies and its functions. We learn to be afraid to talk about those things. And it does lead to trauma in a lot of different ways in our society. You know, women are shamed regularly for embracing their sexuality. LGBTQI people are shamed regularly for embracing their sexuality and expressing it. Um, and this ties in to. Uh, what some of we've been talking about in these podcasts is the idea of sexual abuse. This ties in because now what you learn is, and especially with social media nowadays, right? You hear everybody's opinions. What you, you, children can learn is other people have a say in their bodies. Other people, all these opinions matter in what they have to say about your body or how you use it. Um, and when abuse does happen, because there's so much powerful shame around bodies, around sex, you don't want to talk about it. There's, there's, there's too much shame and they're, they're scared essentially into silence and may not seek the help. 
And in those cases where it is, in a, it is sexual abuse or sexual assault, that shame is magnified because now it's not just about the, the sex shame is already enormous. And now there's the shame of there was a power. It's a power thing, right? Your power was taken away. Your autonomy was taken away. Now that is layered in to the shame we already have about sex. And that can make it very, very difficult for children, especially to talk about it because they can't process what's happening, but all they know is the shame. All they know that this is bad and I'm so not supposed to talk about it. So it's kind of important for us, I, I think, to, to be aware of where these things come from. And with that being said, let's get back to the activity that, well, the words I said at the beginning of the podcast. So the words again were penis and vagina. And for the listeners, you know, kind of think to yourself, what, what was your immediate reaction? And I actually want to ask Kyan, did you have any immediate reaction when I said those words? Yeah, um, I think that I just, I just like felt uncomfortable. Like that was the first response that I had. And then second was that like, I'm thankful my, my children aren't here because they don't, they don't hear those words often. And I'm sure they would have many questions on maybe even like the appropriateness, right? Because they would see that as like swearing. So they would be like, mom, why, <laughs> why are those words being said? Because to them, it's, it's not allowed to, so you know what I mean? Like in school, if they said penis or vagina, it'd be frowned upon, just like it would be if they said the F word or, you know, and they really, I mean, after listening to you, they're really not the same, but we do think of it the same way that it's not allowed to say those words or it's not appropriate to say those words. Thanks, Kyan. Um, very interesting that you put together that those words are seen as akin to swearing. I think that also speaks to the idea of shame, right? Like we see these words as so bad that they're as bad as cussing. That really says something, yeah? Um, for, for me, even just saying the words the first time and this time made me uncomfortable too, because we were raised, right? A lot of us with that idea that we're not allowed to say those words. And if you, like you said, if you say it in a classroom, you get in trouble because it is a bad word. Um, so, you know, what the, the solution to these, this shame is, is not an easy one, right? These are things that are built in to our mindsets. But as with anything that is built in, because there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of prejudices. There's a lot of things that we're just locked into. The most important thing I think is for us to be aware whenever we have a visceral or immediate reaction. Because usually, um, as I found, a lot of our immediate negative reactions are sometimes related to some kind of trauma. And mind you, for the listeners, trauma does not have to be only a specific event. Trauma can be created by the ways we've been taught to think, right? Because then the ways we've been raised to think influence how we behave. And that can be traumatic for us when we encounter someone saying the word penis or vagina. When we react that strong, that's kind of a, a, a really sudden negative response. So the challenge is for us to be aware that if we have a strong reaction like that is to just, you know, it's hard, but sometimes to pause and go, all right, 
why am I having this reaction to this word, this, this, this thing, this event, this incident, whatever it is, why am I having this reaction? What, what is that? Where is that coming from? Because really strong reactions like that, you know, if we want to say like all of our ancestors, human ancestors, right? Those really strong, scared reactions running away was like when there was a tiger nearby and you had to run from it. But we've now in a modern culture, we've kind of locked in those kinds of responses to symbols, right? To what does this symbolize? So like the word penis and vagina for us symbolizes something that's very threatening. But is it? Because it's not. When we say those words, we're not threatening anybody's lives. Nobody's in danger, right? So if not, if no one is really truly in danger, why this reaction? What, what, what do I think about this word? What do I think about this topic that makes me react like that? Um, and actually, there was a point I was going to touch on uh, when I was giving some of the examples. But one of the big things now, since I brought up the word danger, is the idea of protect the children, right? And, and that was something that you just brought up too, Kyan, is where you said um, you don't want your kids to hear it. That was one of your first reactions. And I would think the same thing. I would think, okay, I don't want my taking near me when I'm saying those words, because I, I don't want them to learn to say it and because it's a bad thing. Um, a lot of that is the automatic reaction for our culture when it comes to uh, teaching people about LGBTQI, teaching people about sex education. All of it turns into, well, we can't teach children that, that's dangerous. We shouldn't be teaching children that. And when we pause to think about it, where does that come from? Why, why is that? Why do we think children shouldn't know about their bodies until way later when they've hit puberty and now they're trying to figure everything out suddenly, right? Um, why do we think they shouldn't learn about sexual orientation until way later when by then a, uh, an LGBTQI person is now very confused about why they have desire for someone they're not supposed to or that they just didn't realize they could have desire for why are why would we wait until um a girl has her has her period and now she has no idea what this is can you imagine the panic right of i have no idea what's happening to my body so that's that's kind of how the shame is manifesting really strongly in our culture right now is that, that to protect the children we have to protect them but in protecting them i kind of wonder are we actually possibly going to set them up for struggle later because we didn't teach them about their bodies we didn't teach them about how they can express their sexuality and that it is acceptable um, and then they're going to hit it and then that's when you have all the confusion and and you know I hear a lot of parents interestingly say you know with internet we're afraid right what our kids are going to learn not from us right we're afraid they're going to learn things or even get um, get in touch with individuals who may harm them. But then we also don't wanna give them the information at a younger age so that they can properly feel, feel um, you know, okay with their bodies and feel okay to talk about their bodies. Um, but, but again, that all comes back to the shame, right? We're so ashamed of talking about these things to our keiki. Um, and you know, it's an adults only thing. And even with adults, sometimes it's like, can't talk about that. Um, so again, no easy solution, but I think it's a very interesting, 
idea to roll around in our heads to kind of think about, all right, what is our, what is this powerful aversion we have to talking about sex and genitalia, um, you know, to our children that may actually make them more, uh, you know, have healthier relationships with their bodies, with sex and with intimacy and understanding what a healthy relationship looks like. Because if we've taught them nothing, they're gonna learn as they go. And something that is not healthy, they didn't learn that that wasn't healthy. So to them, it may just be, okay, this is, this is how it is. Um, so again, ideas to roll around, to think about why we avoid these words. Um, Kyan, any thoughts about what we're sharing? I have a few thoughts. Um, I thought it was so funny when you mentioned like not teaching a girl about her period until she she gets it. Um, funny story is one of my little sisters, she's 22 now, um, but she had gotten her period at a really young age. And I remember being in the bathroom, like brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed. And she was in the shower and she had realized that she, she had just gotten her period. And she started screaming, freaking out. She thought that she was dying because she was bleeding. <laughs> so it just made me think about that. Like she really, she really feared for her life at that moment because she wasn't aware of, of her period. And even um, some girls who would get their period and be shame in school to ask. And so they're like wadding napkins and intermediate you know I heard a story of like one girl that did that for a long period of time um and didn't didn't talk to her parents about it so she was just using wads of toilet paper instead of actually using a pad or a tampon because she wasn't properly educated about it and so that was like something that I thought that was really funny to share because it's, I mean, I can only imagine what was going through my sister's head as that happened, or even, you know, like getting older for the other person that had like wadded their napkins for a long period of time instead of getting a pad or tampon. And we, you know, as a parent, we make it so important to our children not to lie to them. But, you know, with the shame around sexuality and sex and genitalia, we lie to them a lot <laughs> like you know how babies are made or we sugarcoat it and we don't tell them how they're born but they find out eventually and I'm sure 